0: Good morning. Before we dive into the message a couple of thoughts that I want to share with you. Uh, The first is a sad note. Um, Larry Wagner passed away on Friday night. Some of you don't know or remember Larry but Larry and Connie Wagner were two of the very small band of people that we started North River with um, almost 32 years ago and I'm very grateful for Larry. I don't know of all of the uh, arrangements yet But for those of you who um, remember and know Larry and Connie, please give Connie a call and and we'll keep you posted on those details. Um, Second, we have an urgent prayer request. Um, Diane Frazier. Diane and Rick live in Plymouth. Uh, Diane's having surgery tomorrow morning and this is kind of risky. It's called a deep brain stimulation surgery that is designed to relieve some of the uh, symptoms that are related to MS that she has been living with for a long time. So I'm asking that we pray together in just a moment and think of her tomorrow morning. Uh, we continue to pray for Nancy Merrifield and Margie Kamen. Let's do that for a moment right now. Father, we thank you for uh, the, the way that you work through lives of people and the way that you use people for great things. I thank you for Larry Wagner and his thumbprint that was all over North River in the early years of launching this church for his servant attitude and for his faithfulness for so long, thank you for calling him home. We lift up Margie to you and uh, also Nancy with their ongoing struggles and ask that you will continue to grant them strength and healing. And we specifically pray this morning for Diane that you will allow her surgeons to be at their absolute best tomorrow morning, and we pray that you will walk very closely with Diane and with Rick as they go through this um, v- very uh, tense moment in, in their lives, and we pray that you will use this for good. We pray that you will protect her during this time, and Lord, that you will allow them to uh, perform this very delicate brain surgery in, in excellent fashion, and we pray for uh, great results that will begin to, to liberate her a bit. Lord, we thank you for allowing us to gather here this morning, we thank you for the freedoms that we share, we thank you for the joy that we have in coming back together, in Jesus' name, amen. I wanted to do something a little different in opening up this morning. Uh, On this particular morning 77 years ago, most of the nation would have woken up to discover something that had been awaited, but not yet announced until early that morning, and Literally hundreds of thousands of American and British and Canadian soldiers were being transported across the Bay to Normandy for what is known as D-Day, which ran for three days, June 6th and 7th, 1944. Think back to a better time when things were not as confusing as they seemed to be politically. Believe it or not, presidents and the nation prayed together. This is the prayer that Franklin Roosevelt uh, prayed on the radio and that urged people to pray that day. It's a little bit long, but I thought this particular Sunday falls on June 6th and it was a great time for this reminder. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. Lead them straight and true, give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts steadfastness in their faith they will need thy blessings their road will be long and hard for the enemy is strong he may hurl back our forces success may not come with rushing speed but we shall return again and again and we know that by thy grace and by thy righteousness of our cause our sons will triumph they will be sore tried by night and by day without rest until the victory is won The darkness will be rent by noise and flame. Men's souls will be shaken with the violences of war. For these men are lately drawn from the ways of peace. They fight not for the lust of conquest. They fight to end conquest. They fight to liberate. They fight to set justice, to let justice arise, and tolerance and goodwill among all thy people. They yearn but for the end of battle, for their return to the haven of home. Some will never return. Embrace these, Father, and receive them, thy heroic servants, into thy kingdom. And for us at home, fathers, mothers, children, wives, sisters, and brothers of brave men overseas, whose thoughts and prayers are ever with them, help us, almighty God, to rededicate ourselves in the renewed faith in thee in this hour of great sacrifice. Many many people have urged that I call the nation into a single day of special prayer, but because the road is long and the desire is great, I ask that our people devote themselves in a continuance of prayer. As we rise to each new day, and again when each day is spent, let words of prayer be on our lips, invoking thy help to our efforts. Give us strength too, strength in our daily task to redouble the contributions we make in the physical and the material support of our armed forces. And let our hearts be stout to wait out the long travail, to bear sorrows that may come to impart our courage unto our sons, wheresoever they may be. And, O Lord, give us faith. Give us faith in thee, faith in our sons, faith in each other, faith in our united crusade. Let not the keenness of our spirit ever be dulled. Let not the impacts of temporary events or temporal matters of but fleeting moment, let not these deter us in our unconquerable purpose. With thy blessing, we shall prevail over unholy forces of our enemy, help us to conquer the apostles of greed and racial arrogancies, lead us to the saving of our country, and with our sister nations into a world unity that will spell us a sure peace, a peace invulnerable to the schemings of unworthy men, and a peace that will let all of men live in freedom, reaping the just rewards of their honest toil. Thy will be done, almighty God. Amen. I think it's important sometimes that we remember back and think about the price that was paid for the simple freedoms we enjoy every day. I remember encountering that prayer the first time. We took a trip over to uh, France, and we were standing on Omaha Beach on a windy day. And uh, it was my, my one of my daughters and my wife and I and my father-in-law. And my father-in-law pulled that prayer out of his pocket, and he remembered back to the day when he was 11 years old and first heard that prayer on the radio that morning and thought of all the young men in his father's factory who had gone off to war with tears streaming down his face, he read that, that prayer. And I, I think of, of that uh, again this morning. We're beginning a new series this morning and I wanted to ask a question. What are the greatest comebacks that you can remember? In 2004, the Boston Red Sox accomplished one of the greatest sports comebacks of all time. Down three games to zero in a best-of-seven series in the AL Championship against the New York Yankees. And losing 4-3 to three in the bottom of the ninth inning, pinch runner Dave Roberts stole second base and then scored on a single by Bill Miller to improbably tie the game. A few innings later, David Ortiz hit a two-run home run to win the game. And the Red Sox... Not only won that game, but they did something that had never been done before by coming back in a series like that, being down three games to nothing, and to go on to the World Series and then winning that in, in, in uh, just a phenomenal fashion, the first time the Red Sox had won since 1918. Now, these are some of the other great comebacks in our history. Abraham Lincoln lost the U.S. Senate race in 1858, yet came back to win the nomination and then the presidency in 1860. U.S. Grant had given up his military career at 32 and rumors swirled that he was losing a battle with alcoholism. Yet he joined the Union Army after the Civil War broke out and slowly rose to the ranks until President Lincoln chose him as a leading general who turned the tide in that awful war. After ruling France and dominating Europe for 10 years, Napoleon Bonaparte was exiled to the Isle of Elba off the coast of Italy. But after 10 months, he managed to slip away and then return to France with 1,000 men. As Napoleon approached, soldiers presumed to be loyal to the king joined the cause of Napoleon as soon as the whispers were out that he was back, and soon he was back for a 100-day reign as emperor. Or think of Kelly Strug's second vault attempt on a badly injured ankle, helping the United States women's Olympic team win the gold medal in a close competition with the Russians. These are all great comebacks, and the point of raising these is that every church that is either reopening or expanding its open services is trying to figure out how to foster a strong comeback in this season. That is true for North River as well. While we hope that our online presence will continue to be a strong first step for many people, we also realize that those who are in geographical range and who desire more of a closer connection are beginning to come back on Sundays, and we're seeing that measured out week by week right now. And so we want to handle this comeback season well. Now, I raise all of this today because we're going to begin a new short series this morning that I'm calling Comeback Principles. And there are two reasons for this series title and for this specific emphasis. The first reason is now that the COVID restrictions have been lifted, we need guidelines for navigating our church-wide comeback. But even beyond this comeback, this COVID season, and the, as that is hopefully continuing to fade, we are always navigating the challenging process of how people who have withdrawn from church for a host of reasons are welcomed into the fellowship of the local church, and how we welcome those who've never been part of a church who are making a comeback in the direction of walking with God. My conviction is that the principles that we are going to focus on will help us with both of these challenges. So part one in this series is accepting differences. So let me welcome you back to North River today. We're seeing more and more people come back to celebrate with us in person, and I'm delighted about that. And many of you are connecting with us online as well, and we are grateful that you are with us as well today. For our online congregation, I want you to know that our online church is not just a COVID survival method, but rather our plan is to continue to widen the communication ministry of North River Church for years to come. So please tell a friend, take the initiative to communicate back with us. If you're at home, clap, sing, laugh, invite, discuss, email us back with questions. You can send your questions to me at paul at northriverchurch.org. I'd love to hear from you. I'd like to talk about some comeback principles that are based on these first four verses of Romans 14 that make North River healthy as we employ them. Here's the first one. Figure out, in regards to our faith, what is essential and what is disputable. So Paul writes in verse 1 of Romans 14, accept those whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. We read these words in Paul's letter to the Roman church. Romans is known as the most theological book in the New Testament. Yet about half of this letter is filled with practical advice for Christian living. So think of this, even in the in the most theological book of the entire Bible, half of it is filled with practical advice for how we live out our faith day by day. And about a chapter and a half are dedicated to dealing with disagreements. So here in this this very challenging book, we find some very practical advice. I don't know about you, but I find that encouraging. There is no perfect community. Paul didn't expect that for the church in Rome, and God doesn't expect that for our community either, that, that we will be perfect today. So right off the bat, let's not add an unrealistic expectation today. The Bible offers us advice about how to manage disagreement when it pops up in the midst of our community. The first way we become more welcoming is by trying to figure out what is essential about our faith. The positive command in verse 1 is to accept. The negative modifier in verse 1 is without quarreling over disputable matters. To avoid uh, quarreling over disputable matters, we have to know first what is essential. To find the answer to what is essential, we need to go back to the context of this particular passage. Paul spent the first eight chapters of Romans spelling out the gospel and the doctrines of salvation. Paul would say, these things are essential. So what does that mean for us? What is essential for us? The gospel about Jesus Christ, about his life, his saving work, how God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit save us, shape us, and transform us. That's a short summary of what chapters 1 through 8 of Romans are all about, And then the practical stuff comes rolling out after that point. Given that context, we can come up with a reasonable definition of what disputable matters are. Notice what we are not doing. We are not simply saying that disputable matters are whatever you think or whatever I think. If we did that, we would have hundreds of opinions, which would be of little help at all. What we are doing. Is defining dispute, the word disputable based on the context of this biblical letter? Disputable matters, in the context that Paul intended, are disagreements over things, ideas, and practices that do not contribute to our salvation. In other words, the things that we may see as secondary but important in terms of how we understand the the uh, the scriptures. ...that don't directly contribute to whether or not you and I are connected to God the Father through Jesus. Now, falling under the category of essential things, then, are the identity and saving work of Jesus on the cross... ...any of the commands that come directly from Jesus or the apostles. And highest on this list would be Jesus' command to love each other as he has loved us. And next, then, to love our neighbors as ourselves... Specific doctrinal concepts about the Trinity, the nature of God, and the saving work of God. Everything else that does not affect our salvation, we can put in that disputable category. They might be important things, important doctrines, important ideas, but they're less important than the doctrines that lead to the way that God has worked out his plan to rescue the nations. Every church has core beliefs and doctrinal convictions that are important. Knowing what is essential allows us to know how we can accept the differences that we might find might find even in, within our own congregation. Many of those differences involve things that are not quite as important or as life-changing and so we can hold different ideas, we can hold different political views because our politics doesn't get us to heaven. Last time I checked, there's not a party name that says you have to be a part of this particular party in in order to get into heaven. Although, if you're a diehard uh, member of either party, you may be convinced that your party is the ticket. But it just doesn't read that way in the Bible. And so many of the, the differences that we hold are important, but we have to hold just a little bit lightly. I have a close friend for 35 years who, differ, who differs from my view of economics. He calls himself a Christian socialist and we laughingly disagree over that, but he's one of my most treasured friends here at North River. That's just one example. We had a, a, a youth pastor at one, one time who was a diehard Wesleyan and I come from more of a Reformed tradition. And what we realized was our disagreements over theology made up about 1% of all the things that we disagreed over. And we determined that we could work off of the 99 and not argue over the 1%. And in the six years that he was here, there was never one argument that we had over theology, even though we came from completely different viewpoints. So those are just a few examples. The point is that agreement on the central areas of faith allow us to have healthy disagreements on secondary things. Does that make sense to you? I sure hope so. So the first challenge that Paul gives is he tells us to figure out what is essential and what is disputable, all that shows up in verse 1. The second challenge is to accept those people with different viewpoints. And so Paul writes again in that first verse, accept those whose faith is weak. Now we have to unpack that a little bit to understand what's going on here. We accept people even though we may disagree over ideas. Does that make sense to you? People are important. Ideas are not quite as important as the people who hold them. So Paul writes that we accept those whose faith is weak in regard to what he calls disputable matters. Now please understand, Paul is not calling some people weak Christians versus strong Christians. Let's drop any hint of pride or name calling here. This strong and weak business becomes clear when we look at the specific issue that he was writing about on that day. The concern had to do with meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Rome was a polytheistic culture. So let's break down that word. Poly means many, theos is the Greek word for God. And so they believed in many different gods. And Roman culture was warped around uh, ...worship to all of these different gods. And animal sacrifices were often made to the gods. So the local meat market largely came from leftover meat... ...after these sacrifices... ...and after chunks of the meat were burned up in, in, uh, in offering to their gods. That meant that unless there were Jewish bushers with kosher meat sales... ...all of the available meat that was left over... ...after the animals had been sacrificed to the idols was the meat that made it onto the market. And that made some people, some Christians, really, really uncomfortable. They wanted nothing to do with idols or idol worship. And some assumed that eating this meat in some way corrupted them spiritually. You see the context that's going on here? Without saying any more about the meat, Paul's first command then is accept them. In other words, accept the people who differ over this practice. He wants us to know that in regard to practices that do not impact our salvation, we can accept people who have different views and practices within the same church. Look around at at those who are here today, or if you're online, those who are in the room where you find yourself, and you will find that in most cases, there are people who don't agree 100% down the line with all the things that we think are important in life. There are people here who will disagree with you ...on some things that you hold very dear. So long as such beliefs do not undermine the core doctrines of salvation... ...they are secondary. That means that these things will not weaken or impact the quality of our faith. So from the outset, Paul is telling people who are part of the church... ...to be ready to accept. We are not instructed to be people who are ready to reject. We are instructed to be people who are ready to accept... Isn't that great? So, who are we ready to accept? That's what the next few verses begin to explain to us. But Paul starts with this posture of warning the church, preparing the church to be ready to accept. Imagine if we came to North River every weekend, decided, I am ready to accept who I will meet today. Can you imagine what that would feel like or look like or how that would impact the fellowship that we create together? Please say this with me. North River is ready to accept. North River is ready to accept. Okay, here's the more personal side. I am ready to accept. Are you? I am ready to Now, taking that posture, if we mean it, if we embrace it, makes us healthier, and it also makes us more attractive as a community of faith. Because guess what? People walk into a church where they don't know the history, the belief system. And they are wondering, will I find anybody who's like me? Will I be welcomed here? Will I be turned away? I know those sound irrational when you know the church and you're comfortable, but those are the normal thoughts of anybody who walks in from the outside for the first time. They're wondering, is this a place that will be safe for me or not? And when we are ready to accept other people as they are, as they start their journey, becomes one that is a welcomed journey and and a a constructive journey. So Paul says, in a sense, figure out what is essential, what is disputable. Accept those with different viewpoints. We accept people we may disagree over ideas and even challenge ideas. Here's the third principle that, that comes out of these first four verses. Use freedom or liberty to build up, not to tear down. So, verses two and three, Paul takes this a bit farther, and he says, One person's faith allows them to eat everything, but another person whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted that person. We have established that this was about conscience based decisions regarding eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. There are four four possible decisions Christians can make about this. Now, these decisions were, these uh, concepts were laid out in a book called Decision Making and the Will of God by Gary Friesen a number of years ago. The first is that some people will realize that idols are just wood or stone, and so they are free to eat the meat, because the idols are really nothing. Some realize that idols are just wood or stone, but they chose not to eat the meat anyway because they just didn't want to have anything associated with that practice. Some would not eat the meat sacrificed to idols, yet they were fine with other Christians who chose to. and some would not eat the meat sacrificed to idols, and they felt tempted when other Christians did, and so sometimes they judged those other Christians. If we put it into a grid, it looks something like this. There are four quadrants. In one quadrant, people are free to eat, and they're not participating. In the other, they're free to eat, and yet they are participating in that activity. In the bottom half, there are some who are not free to eat and not supportive of others doing so. And there are some who felt they were not free to eat, and yet still supportive of the choice of those who felt they had that freedom. Now Paul adds another layer to this puzzle that has to do with two words, contempt and judgment. Those with freedom to eat must not treat veggie-only Christians with contempt, he says. And those without freedom to eat meat must not judge meat-eating carnivorous Christians. It is easy for those with freedom of conscience to treat others as weak or contemptible. This person could easily wound the conscience of a person who disagrees on that practice. And it is easy for those with a personal conviction that something is wrong to judge those who don't share that conviction and this person could easily seek to control or look down on the one who uses that freedom. So let's add that into our grid. We'll add the concepts of contempt and judging that we are to avoid those. So for those who are free, they are to avoid contempt for those who are not. And for those who felt they were not free to participate... They were to avoid judging those who were. Okay, why does Scripture give us freedom to disagree over matters like this? Real simple. These matters are not essential to the primary thing that we are called to, which is to promoting the gospel around the world. And the choices we make over these concerns don't factor into our eternity or our eternal destiny. And God accepts those who eat meat with freedom and those who don't by conviction. Here's the big idea that I want to get across this morning. Knowing what is essential to the gospel allows us to handle disagreements on secondary concerns and to genuinely accept those who differ. Okay, how does this help us today? We're long beyond the days when people were sacrificing meat to idols. Yet the principles behind this particular localized problem still play out in the way that we make decisions today. So Paul goes on to verse 4 and he says, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master they stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. So he's saying, even if we make mistakes on these matters, the Lord is able to make us stand, to give us confidence, to to allow us to grow and to mature in our faith. Think of the, the challenge that we're in today as we're beginning to come back. We will find, both here in church and in other places where we go, some feel freedom to discard masks, knowing that the COVID numbers are going lower and that many people have had the vaccine. Some will continue to wear masks due to health concerns. And we need to honor the wishes of those who choose social distancing. We need to honor the wishes of those who choose to wear masks. So some of our key volunteers today who are dealing with everybody will wear masks in order to serve all. Our staff members have masks ready, and if you come and you get close, and I know I already violated this once this morning, but we'll put our masks on if you have that concern without any thought of of judgment or contempt, just recognizing you have that right and we want to honor that and respect that. We honor everyone as we avoid both contempt and judgment toward each other on issues like this. I think this is also a rather easy one to show respect with because these principles may play out in other ways. That makes this a learning laboratory for us to test how accepting we are of differences on secondary things. Mastering these principles will enable us us to apply them to many more situations and they will equip us to accept and welcome others by applying these steps. At all times we need to be willing to accept people where they are when they connect with us without judgment. Some people come here to North River with a lot of confusion about biblical faith because of where they have been. Some will need time to wrestle with how biblical faith brings change and transformation into their lives. People rarely start that faith journey with all of the pieces of the puzzle put together. And so this needs to be a safe place where we give people room. And our role is to create that safe place where God can lead each of us along our individual growth tracks. This week I saw a beautiful example of this at a large church in Orlando, Florida, After the shootings that took place at the Pulse nightclub five years ago this week when 49 LGBT people were killed, 53 wounded, and hundreds traumatized, this Southern Baptist church that I was at for two days in a consulting uh, meeting on Wednesday and Thursday decided that they need to do a, a better job in showing the love of Jesus to the LGBT community even though they are a church that has a traditional viewpoint of marriage and sexuality. So the church brought in Posture Shift Ministries to help them learn how to do this. Since I'm on the board of directors for Posture Shift, I participated in a second round of training with the executive leadership and staff of this extremely large church, thousands of people. During the two days I was there, we were able to interview two men who were survivors of that awful night at the Pulse nightclub. They were cared for, fed, and housed after the crisis left them homeless and traumatized And they were accepted and not judged for where they started the process and over time over the last five years both of these men came to faith in christ both of them have been baptized as believers and are serving and growing in their faith today because the church reached out to a group of people who are very different from them and thought that the church would simply reject them because they disagreed over this fundamental thing that is roiling through our society On Thursday, another gay man came in and he talked with the senior leaders of this church. He had come from another country to work at Disney. And when he started coming to the church, he had no faith background at all, was newly married to another man, and then he heard this teaching about the love of Jesus that can transform your life. He has recently received Jesus as his Savior and as Lord of his life and now has great questions about how to navigate the changes that are happening in his life and about where he fits, and how he can serve in that church as he's on this journey with slow, incremental changes being made. He wanted to give back because he had already received so much. I have to tell you, that conversation, uh, sitting in it as an outsider, just observing, was wonderful, messy, and even beautiful to listen as church leaders accepted him for where he was, embraced him as one who belongs to the church, And yet they were providing room for him to continue to grow in faith with this man embracing step-by-step changes in his life at the direction of the Spirit of God, not by anybody else, as the church loves and teaches him along that path, pulled along by love. I thought about that as I was witnessing that and thought, this is a picture of what the church will need to be like as our culture radically shifts around us and as we seek to fulfill our mission. Despite disagreements, we will love. Now, here's, here's the, the, the piece of this for me that just put the whole thing over the edge. On the night after, I, I flew out on Thursday night and came home, but on that night, the leader of, of the posture shift ministry went back to the Pulse Memorial, which you were seeing in that last picture with the flowers up and pictures of all these people who had died. And in addition to laying flowers along this um, fenced-in nightclub that's closed and it's been turned into a memorial, he had a number of the next generation, in other words, uh, young adult leaders of that church, writing cards that they pinned along the fence there. And you know what cards they were? They were Max cards with these big hearts all over them. And I thought, whoa, this is amazing. You know, that the cards that have emanated from one of our own are showing the love of Jesus to people in the midst of this brokenness as five years later that city is still mourning over that. And again, this is a picture of what the church will need to look like as we move forward in a culture that is radically shifting. And you know, that just fits our mission as a church. Our vision statement is people being forever changed by God's love and daily changing the South Shore and beyond for Jesus. This is the kind of work that we need to be involved in step by step or highlighting when we see it somewhere else and praising God for it. Knowing what is essential to the gospel allows us to handle disagreements on secondary concerns and to genuinely accept those who differ. Please pray with me. If you're, praying, if you're online, this prayer should be popping up on your screen as well. Lord Jesus Draw me in deeper into God's plan for my life. Help me to know the gospel and the core beliefs of Christian faith so well that I can better handle disagreements and genuinely love and accept those with differing views from my own. In your name, amen. Folks, I hope that you'll uh, stay with us over the next few weeks as we look at some more of these uh, comeback principles that are coming from Romans chapter 14 in the early part of Romans 15.